welcome to Shine Me A Light Podcasts, where each week we interview someone from class of 95, Sydney Girls High School, and we talk about the last 27 years. This is episode three, and this is Michelle Watson. And this was the first time also I had trouble with parking. And I should have told you. I pulled up the street and I went, oh, yes, a park right outside the building. And there's no parking in it. I see the no parking driveway. (laughs) Yeah, that's our driveway. (laughs) So lucky I saw that. We're around the corner. All right. So. Was your surname Watson? No. Thank you. Thank you. The dad's. Hallelujah. (laughs) I don't recall a Michelle. I don't remember a Michelle, but not a Michelle. (laughs) That's really good. There was like three Michelles. Who were the other Michelles? So there was Michelle Schwarzberg. Yes. And Michelle Sowey. I can't bring her face. I will find her in the photo. Yeah. I got a photo. Okay. So we're going back, way back, 27 years into the past. Doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't feel like that long to me sometimes. Yeah. So you did HSC in 95 with everybody else? Yep. And what happened from there? Oh, my goodness. So I went, well, at the very end of 2000, not 1995, went on a cruise with three other mates from Sydney High, a fair-style cruise for two weeks down in the South Pacific, which was awesome. That is where we got our HSC results, out in the middle of the South Pacific. My parents faxed them to the boat. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) So 95. So 95. (laughs) Um. And I, I didn't think I was going to do very well. So I just planned on doing arts at New South Uni. Everyone was going to New South. And so that was just going to be like a fun year. Yeah. But I did a lot better than what I thought and then got lectured by all these people on the boat who knew that we were waiting for our HSC results and like, why are you doing arts with that result? So I still I ended up doing arts psychology. Yeah. <laughs> so beefed it up a little bit. Um, and, yeah, went to New South Wales Uni uh, with a bunch of friends from Sydney boys and Sydney girls did a few interesting subjects, but was never going to get a career. Like, I mean, how old are you when you graduate? Eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. yeah so I did. <laughs> I did that for a year and then deferred at the end of ninety five, uh, ninety six, um, thinking I might come back later. And I didn't go back to that course, but I did go back to uni a few years later. And then from ninety seven through to two thousand, I worked. So I worked in. It's quite funny actually because I always had this. I love that movie, Working Girl. <laughs> no, Working Dolly Girl. Parton. No, well, well yeah. Uh, Is it Dolly Parton? That was nine, no, to that was 9 to 5. Yeah, so Working Girl was Melanie Griffith and Sigourney Weaver. And Melanie Griffith, like, she goes and works for some, I don't know what sort of firm they are. Like a, yeah, I'm sure it's that era, though, same era. But yeah. Movie. Anyway, I just she used to catch the ferry to work in her big shoulder pad suit and then she'd, you know, wear sneakers and change into these high heels and, and go into the city. And I, for some reason I always loved that film as a kid. And then I got this job in the city working as an insurance a life insurance underwriter. I did insurance too. I did a traineeship, yeah. What sort of insurance? Uh, it was Mercantile Mutual, which was joined to ING and I did a year traineeship. Oh my god, that's so funny. With the sneakers and the shoes, yeah. That's right. I, I had the fairy as well. So I'd catch the fairy in my power suit and it was ridiculous. But it was a really interesting job. So I was basically assessing and they train, what was I again, like 19, yeah. um, and they train you, you know, in, in underwriting. I had to do a medical terminology course at Sydney Uni. So I sort of speak medicalese, which is quite funny because if I go to the doctor for anything, I, I can – and they always say, are you medical? Like, do you have – and I'm like, no, I just speak your language. <laughs> so I learned it a few years ago. Um, but, you know, I was reading doctor's reports and 
sending people for medicals so we could assess their fitness for life insurance and that sort of thing. So I was there for um, about three years. And then I went to, I went back to uni in 2000 and I decided to do um, visual communications at UTS. And so the the TR for that at that stage was like 98, but because I was a, a what do they call them, mature? Well, you're a mature age now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so I had to, I still had to do a submission, and again I had a pretty good TR, but I still had to, you know, provide a written submission. You know that none of the 18 year olds know what a TR is. What's it called now? ATAR. ATAR. Isn't that funny? So tertiary entry something ranking ranking yeah, and that's what's disappeared ATAR? And ATAR is I don't even know. Academic oh T's got to be tertiary admission ranking or something like yeah and that's probably the thing again. like other than getting into i guess a course that you want like when you are much older like 20 years old or whatever i mean i had it on my cv for a little while in the beginning and i'm like get that off there. no one cares about that anyone's got um yeah so went to and i had a you know portfolio because i was really interested in cartooning i don't know if you remember me back in high school but i used to do cartooning back then um and I never did it, obviously I didn't go into it straight after uni and I didn't really think there was, like, what do you do with that? I did work experience at school at the um, Daily Telegraph with the cartoonists there. And then, but they were all like political cartoonists for the most part. So back then I wasn't interested in politics, so I didn't think that was a career pathway then. And then, yeah, just found this course at at UTS that looked really good. So it's visual communication, but it's design. It's a design degree. But it's all different type of design, like film and video design and typography and, you know, cartooning as well. Like you could follow that in the different courses within that. It's visual. It's visual. And it was really cool. So I went and did that from 2000 to 2004. Um, Enjoyed that. And then after that, I moved to London for a couple of years. I'm really speeding through this actually because there's a but like I was a freelance cartoonist in between that and I was I I was in a kids entertainment group where I played the you know like the wiggles song. Kind of style kids yeah, entertainment yeah some some mates of mine um made up a, a kids entertainment group called hide and seek and then we found that name was taken so it changed to go seek and we do parties and events and shows and I would do the cartooning for it and then helped to write some of the songs and I played the keyboard for it. Wow. <laughs> it was pretty cool. That's really fun. Yeah, so really random. But then also during that I was working at AMP part-time while I was studying and I was working so I was working A&P. in finance. But then I worked in this building in the city where they got me to do this huge warm mural of cartoons of all of management, which was a bit stressful. <laughs> like these guys pay my wages yeah. and I have to, you know, do some satirical cartoons of them massively on the walls. That yeah, navigating um, the egos. Yeah, so some strange kind of jobs along the way. How did you find AMP? So AMP, yeah, I mean, it, and it wasn't the insurance side because AMP was big insurance back there as well. Yeah. I think I got, I started through, a lot of my jobs I started as a temp. Um, yeah, so I started there. And it was awesome because 2000, obviously, we had the Olympics. And yes. AMP had this building right on Alfred Street in Circular Quay that overlooked Circular Quay. And we, they let us come in at, you know, at night and watch the opening ceremony. Oh, and yeah. then the torch relay went by just below us one day when we were working. So it was, yeah, and it was the call centre there. So I was answering calls. And we're in Australia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. And I went the call centre. And we're in Australia. So, and I used to do the late shift as well, which was awesome. Just did they have twenty four hours? So they had the three. I think not then, but we went to like eleven or something like that at 
night. And so I'd go to uni during the day and then come and work the late shift in the course. And, and had the, I still kept, I caught up with some A&P crew literally last weekend. It was just such a nice, lovely group of people. And everybody had, I find that in banking a lot anyway, people have these backgrounds that have nothing to do. So I was doing cartooning and, you know, we have photographers and filmmakers and all these really interesting background careers and people would kind of in the call centre just to, you know. It was just their nine to five. He was, or their six to 11. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was. And I actually, it's funny because it kind of informs what happened you know later on because I really loved the camaraderie and just the people I was meeting and but ultimately I was studying to be a cartoonist and a freelance cartoonist which you do on your own like it's quite isolating um I found so I was doing that you know I was working part-time then studying then I thought I'll do freelance cartooning full-time when I graduated and I did um and there was a lot of work and I did you know I worked for a toy and games agent doing sort of prototypes and cartoons for their books and games. And then I did some, I did a legal publication that got published on. So I did a few things here and there, but I didn't love it. I was really, I did, I wasn't disciplined. Yeah. I know when you're working for yourself, it's like, I'm my own boss. So I don't have to work right now. I'll give myself a day off. (laughs) So I was such a great boss. I feel exposed. (laughs) Yeah. That's the thing. And so I just, I don't know, I wasn't that happy. I didn't love it. Yep. Plus, before I was doing a lot of things that I did enjoy, and I could pick and choose. And, you know, when it's your only source of income, you know, you, you have to take project briefs that maybe aren't as inspiring or interesting. So I really had a, like, epiphany, do I want to keep doing this in this way? And I'd always wanted to travel and live overseas. So in 2004, yeah, after I graduated, with one of my uni buds, we did a bit of a backpacking tour around Europe. And, and had been to New York earlier um, and decided I just fell in love with London and I yeah. wanted to go to London. So I moved over to London. Um, so many people think. Isn't it? It's a kind of the Aussie story. I didn't yeah. live in um, Shepherd's Bush, although I wasn't far. I started in Hammersmith in a this big sort of Victorian townhouse with 12 girls, like five Aussie nurses and my friend who uh, was already over there who we shared a room and then there were these someone from Poland and someone from Thailand. Just really interesting mix, yeah, down in um, Barnes, actually, which is near Hammersmith. And then I met my husband within, like, a few weeks. So I actually got a job at Deutsche Bank over there Yeah. because I'm like, I, I still want to do cartooning, but I don't want to do it full-time. And I've got this finance um, and insurance background. And I had a friend who worked at Deutsche Bank who got me an interview. So then I just, yeah, I started working at Deutsche Bank. And that's where I met my husband. And was he a native or was he also? So he's from northern England. So he is English, but he's from the north part. So I really didn't understand a word he said for the first few months. But I didn't go over there intending to meet anyone like that. Like I really left Sydney just to kind of go, what do I want to do? How can I make sense of this cartooning that I've got but don't want to do full time? I've got finance like Let's just go fall see the world into. and see if we have an adventure and see if things, you know, fall into place. And then within a few months, um, met him. And then, and the funny thing is, when you meet someone when you're overseas, everything moves a lot faster than here. So we were living together within like four months. <laughs> I sort of found London was just like a faster version of Sydney. Anyway, when I went over there, I just felt like I was moving too slow. And everyone was on the right instead of the left on elevators. Oh, my like God. Oh, I just thought, yes, and escalators yeah, going up. And, like, weird things yeah. with their chips. Their chip packets really got me because blue here is plain. Yep. But blue over there is, like, chicken or something <laughs> weird. 
and it's like no green is chicken <laughs> and then red was it was just it's did oh, my God. head in in the beginning I'm like wow culture just like a yeah, parallel parallel universe. parallel universe um but yeah so I was in London from 2004 to 2006 so 2005 was the London bombings Oh, wow. um, and so we were at work, obviously, when that happened right in the middle of the centre of London. And, yeah, that was that was pretty crazy because, they, you know, no one really knew what was happening in the beginning. It sounded like it was a tube accident. And because I was still actually living in that place in Barnes at the time. No, I wasn't. I was living with Simon by then, but still in touch with a lot of the girls who lived there and they were on that tube. Like, they weren't on it, but they catch it. Yeah. So we were trying to reach out to them to see if they were okay. And then the bus flew up and then we were like, then they told us to everyone get away from the windows and close all the blinds. And so I, when we still thought it was like a, an accident, I rang home to Australia and just said to my parents, I know I catch that line, but I wasn't on it, so I'm okay, I'm fine. And then when all the other things started happening, they cut off all the phone lines, no one could oh, wow. get in or out. I don't know if they cut them off or if they just, if just collapsed because yeah. everyone was trying. So at least everyone in Australia who was getting the news that this had happened who was calling my parents, they could say, no, she's fine. She's called me. She's in the office. She wasn't on it. But um, I just remember a bunch. There was a few Aussies who worked and a couple of Kiwis for Deutsche Bank at the time. We were all crowded together in the kind of centre of this office, just wow. supporting each other, going, you know, what the hell's happening? It was awful. And then they cancelled all transport in the middle of London. So I remember when finally they let everyone out. Everyone, it was just scores of people walking through London, across the bridges to get out like we live down in Greenwich and so you know we you have to walk quite far to then get to the buses that they arranged to take people to where they live so it was pretty traumatic Surreal. crazy time yeah um and then I mean I obviously I had this relationship with my husband Simon um and I knew I didn't think I was going to stay in London forever I did love it but also the weather was starting to get to me the winters like the endless oh, winters my first winter in London, I had a, um, I had bought a winter jacket from Bondi <laughs> before I went so there cute. thinking that's going to be so warm. So, I'm so hot in Sydney in this winter jacket and I froze and the zip broke that first winter so I couldn't even close it and I was so cold. And then I saw everyone sitting on the tubes in those, you know, huge puffer proper jackets and so I got one of them by next winter but <laughs> I learnt my lesson. But I just, oh, I just couldn't get warm. I mean, I'm always cold anyway and just over there so I started thinking, I think I'm probably gonna I mean I had my two-year visa Deutsche Bank offered to sponsor me so I could have stayed but I think I was just done but then I had to have the conversation with Simon like I'm gonna go home would you consider maybe coming back to Australia to Australia I remember I was on the tube when I had the conversation I I like got up the courage to ask him and I I didn't think he'd say yes but he was like yeah why not honestly if he had said no I don't know if I would have come home I might have I might have stayed because anyway but he did so um yeah we came back and we stayed with my parents for a few months and moved here we rented this apartment I just had this if I could have put a pin in a map of anywhere I wanted to live this would have been it like I didn't even know this apartment was here but like in Rose Bay this side of Rose Bay near the harbour just and then so we rented this for a year and then we loved it and we're like we can just ask the owners if we could buy it (laughs) and they I mean everyone else who lived here had been here for generations and passed it down to their kids these apartments and you know they'll never sell people have offered they'll never sell but there was some weird 
loophole, not not loophole, but there was some weird thing at the time where the government was offering people could add to their super and some weird interest thing. And because these people were, you know, retired age who owned it, it just the timing worked where we happened to ring them one night, made an offer. We had no, we hadn't even done our research on like what we hadn't got a value or anything. We just kind of plucked a figure out of the air, and they they accepted. We were like, I think we just bought a hat, like bought an apartment. <laughs> Which was awesome. Anyway, so we've been living here since, since and we're, the, we're now the oldest people in the, like, have been living here for the longest time in this building. Everyone else is there. Moved on, but, oh, it um, is a beautiful view. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a really nice, it's a nice place. I mean, when we lived in England, we were, I kind of am like, I'm more about the area. I don't mind if I live in a shoebox. Yeah. It's kind of the area that we want to live in, and that's what, you know, we, we lived in Greenwich for a while in this tiny little, tiny little apartment. It was nice, but it was tiny, but it was in this awesome area, and you know, we both just agreed, you know, we'd rather. But I was thinking, you couldn't even afford a shoebox here anymore. You'd have to be, I would have to be a hobo we in that We couldn't park. afford to live here. <laughs> Seriously, we couldn't, no way. There's no. my home over there on that park bench. <laughs> because, like, and I, I drove through this area, like, it is all my childhood memories, but there's no way I could ever afford to live we here We were again. super lucky. Short of a Lottie Lotto win or something. And that's it. Like, we were, it was 2000 and end of 2006 maybe so maybe what maybe it was only six months we'd rented it and then we bought it and it was before the gfc um global financial crisis yep. <laughs> before all the interest rates went up to like nine percent so just it was that moment in time everything aligned um but yes we would absolutely no way yeah we'll do afford it now but um yeah so then moved back here and ended up i suppose sorry just to jump back to england well and i did work in deutsche bank for the time i was there but i also did some freelance cartooning while I was over there too. So I oh, did wow. keep going and I, and I had a, um, a commission from a girl who was, I can't remember what her project was, but anyway, so did, yeah, did some cartooning there. So I kept my finger in the game. Um, anyway, yeah, so we came back and I got a job at Macquarie. And so I ended up again in their call centre answering questions about, invest- so it was Macquarie Capital, so it was all about investment. But then I moved into a role managing their arrears, which is where people take out loans to buy investments, and if they default, <laughs> then I'm chasing up on that. And this was, again, back in 2006 before the global financial crisis. Then the global financial crisis hit. Everyone around me was being made redundant, and I got asked to build a team because everyone was defaulting on their <laughs> I was going to say, why are they making you guys redundant? Arrears are going through the roof. No, all of them, because you know, people weren't taking out investments. They were literally trying to pay off what they had and get out of the financial markets. Um, so that was just, again, the right place at the right time, but just such a crazy, you know, place to be in during the global financial crisis. Um, so, yeah, worked in Macquarie for a few years. Macquarie's a pretty intense place to work, I have to say. The culture there was just kind of wasn't ideal back then. But it's And then, if, yeah, it's good if you're young or if you have no other responsibilities yeah. or other people picking up your responsibilities and things like that. But once you get into a different category. Well, that was the thing because then I got married, like then, you know, we, engaged and I got married and we had a honeymoon baby <laughs> so quite quickly I got pregnant um and then realized I didn't want to come back to work full-time and it was a really full-on role and it wasn't really the culture that kind of fosters flexible working <laughs> um so I didn't so I'd been at Macquarie I think it was for three years and, and again that was left that um and then ended up at CBA because I, I was looking for a part-time role or a job share and I went to work in a job sharing their corporate super um, area. So were you parenting whilst you were in this role? Yeah, so I had my little baby, yeah. Oh. How did you find that? Yeah, that was um, 
it was good. Like, so I waited to get back into the workforce till she was, I think, one and a half already. And so then there was a um, daycare just up the road, a corporate daycare, and my husband was working for CBA as well. So we kind of had our little, our world was quite small. We were quite close to her and my parents were helping out as well um, in between. So the balance, and I mean, I was only there two days a week. So the other, yeah, it was a nice, it was a pretty good balance. But to be fair, that corporate super role only lasted six months because my job share partner left to create a donut company, (laughs) like or a cupcake company, which is awesome. But then they realised they, rather than bringing someone in for three days, they needed to make this a full-time role. And I couldn't do full-time. And then they said, can we, we can drop it to four days? And I couldn't do, I, I really couldn't do any more than two at yeah. the time. So they were so lovely. So I went into the redeployment pool at CBA. And that was when the role came up that I'm in the same area now, like 11 years later, which is the corporate responsibility team, that yeah. area. So... And- that's the area that does like the Commonwealth Bank Foundation and volunteering and domestic and financial abuse programs, like all the kind of the heart, great stuff that you wouldn't think is in a bank or in a corporate, yeah. but, you know, does really good things for the community and for society. And I, when I was at Macquarie, I used to be a volunteer. So I was part of the volunteering programs that did mentoring for, you know, um, disadvantaged school students and we'd go and do reading with them and maths. But it never occurred to me who organises those programs if I had have known back then yeah. that's the sort of thing I would have I would have wanted to do because I've done a bit of volunteering in my like personal life as well yeah and so then this role just found me through, and actually there was a couple of roles in the redeployment there was that one and then there was another one doing like finance type things like what I've done at Macquarie and it paid more but this one was like I this is awesome and I totally want to do this sort of thing and so gave up kind of a high paying role to move into corporate responsibility and um, you find it has a heart it does it's amazing so I, it, that was a job share role managing their volunteering programs and that's like people within the bank who are like I want to go out there and, and share my skills and expertise or just lend my hands to charities and the bank gives people volunteer leave to go out there and do that and oh. then more programs came on board like we can't it was a small function then and we built it into you know a lot more to it so there were school-based mentoring more programs like what i'd been a volunteer in at macquarie um but then we took on this program it's called jarwin which is awesome and i still manage it today and it basically sends professionals within corporates to go and work in aboriginal businesses in aboriginal communities around australia for six weeks and it's this amazing program where the professionals are lending their skills and expertise to help with, you know, Indigenous-led businesses, but then they're learning Indigenous culture from the community that they're in and, you know, the history and meeting new people and just opening their eyes and making friendships. So it's like this shared learning experience, but it's life-changing for these people who go and do it. Um, and it's, so the program's called JAL and they're, they're the intermediaries they sit outside CBA, but CBA is one of the partners that send our people to do it so we have like 30 people around 30 people a year who go and and do this i have people up in northeast arnhem land at the moment on a succumbent <laughs> working for you know aboriginal businesses up there so it's it's really cool and you know obviously i've worked in finance before i've worked in insurance before i've worked for Macquarie before so all these you know on full-on finance type roles yeah and then to still be in the bank but then to do this other type of work that's really awesome and fulfilling and just it's it's a really great thing to do 
yeah. makes you happy at the end of the day. You know, you're helping people and, you know, you're doing the right thing. Yeah. So that's kind of where I've been in ever since. And probably wondering what happened with the cartooning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of dropped out of your story quite well. Um, when did I stop doing that? So when I came, I mean, I, kind of, I suppose it did start moving to the background when I was in England because I did work for Deutsche Bank. And even though I did a, a, um, a project over there with cartooning, it wasn't huge. And then when I did come back, I kind of had to think, what do I want to go back into a proper corporate again or do I want to try and pick up the cartooning? And I realised by then I just really, I was, I really enjoyed being around people and the corporate environment, which is so weird to say because it's yeah. just so dry and people run from that. But I just found I'd met so many interesting people. I'd learned so many interesting things. It was stable. Um, yeah. And so I decided I'm going to stick with that full time and then I will just do a bit of cartooning on the side again. But I started having some health issues as well that were affecting I, – I had vestibular migraine, wow. which meant yeah. I would have vertigo and if I'd concentrate. So my style of cartooning was I'd do it by hand, scan it into the computer and do all this sort of computer stuff to make it look cool. Yeah. But that was giving me vestibular migraines and, and I was getting vertigo from it. Mm. So, yeah, and I do wonder if part of that is like, subconsciously me just going step away from the cartoon for now and do you think it was the computer part of it that was giving you like the screens yeah it was you could go completely old school i could have and that's the thing i was too i was also too much of a perfectionist to be a really good cartoonist i find because i would if it wasn't exactly like i would see in my head what i was wanting it to look like i also found if i didn't have a good meal my hand-eye coordination was rubbish and so I'm like, why can't I get this down? I can see it in my head. And then I'm like, oh, I didn't have breakfast. <laughs> then I go and have breakfast and come back and I'm like, oh, there it is. But it would just, it would frustrate me. I liked coming oh, up with the so ideas. Right. Yeah, yeah, I but, really do. Yeah. With music. When yeah. I was younger, I couldn't handle how I couldn't create what I could hear in my head. Yes. And now I just don't care because I just don't, yeah. I don't believe I can anymore. Like it, I just don't care anymore. It's, it, so it's not what I want, but it's enough. I'm putting it out. Enough. And I wonder <laughs> if one day I'll get to that again where it's like i'm and I've, I've sort of said that maybe you know one day i will it's chaotic in life at the moment yeah so there's no how space. old are your kids so grace is now 12 and everly who we call evie she's eight so yeah you're still in i'm so yeah it's really full-on and working and it's just a lot so maybe one day in the, i have a vision for the future so i love what you said about heather how like she's got this great vision for me <laughs> she's getting to that stage of like i feel like i do as well, whether it happens or not, but maybe cartooning. I like to get excited time. about life after 50. I've been trying to just not think about it. I know. But I have this great thing in my head where I said when I was 14, I quit piano because I, my, my sentence was, you're not good enough for your age. And I think that's so funny now because it's more true today, right, than I was at 14. And I'm like, oh. I hear like, I'm not going to buy into what I did when I was 14 at 44. You know? oh God, I'm just so going to be crap. And it's like, it's like, what are you doing it for as well? Like, yeah. I, I think because with the cartooning, when it was going to be a career, I was like, I'm again, like I've said before, I'm not only going to have to do project briefs that I'm probably not that inspired by, but the process is killing me. Like, I'm not that motivated to go yes, through that either. Yes. So how am I going to sustain this as a career? It's enjoying the process, isn't it? That's really? the key. Yes, and I wasn't enjoying the process. The final product being, I've got to get to that perfect final product. Ugh. Painful. Yeah. So, so how have you found motherhood? Because I found it really rough. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, it's got its rough patches for sure. But 
it's an interesting one because having two girls, I have a sister, an older sister. My mum was one of two sisters. And just and it's funny because my husband's come from just boys, two boys. His dad was one of three boys, just boys, boys, boys. <laughs> so so it's like, and we'd heard that, you know, obviously the sperm determines what the sex of the baby's going to be. Yep. So we were like, I'm going to have boys. I'd really secretly want a girl, but okay, we're going to have boys. And then we had girls. So, so that was pretty cool. And, you know, Simon and I have pretty good values that are aligned when it comes to, to raising our girls. Um, but me and my sister don't get along. We didn't get along when we were kids. Don't get along that well as adults. And I really didn't want that for my girls. So I'm just... Yeah, and you can't... Con- well, there's a few things... Do they that, get along, though? They, they get along a lot better than my sister and I do. Like, they, they shared a bunk in their bedroom for the longest time. And last year, mid-year, we decided finally we converted our dining room to a bedroom for the little one. But they have sister sleepovers on the weekend. So they'll alternate each weekend and go to each other's room for sleepovers. So by this age, we, I, my relationship with my sister was not that. Um, so they do. I don't know they have their moments, but ultimately they, they do get on really well. And I put so much effort into kind of not doing what had been done when I was a kid with my sister and I around the competitiveness and just a few things that I feel like I've learned. I'm absolutely making a bunch of mistakes in other ways, yeah. I am sure. Do you see, because I love the thing I, that my mother was doing what she didn't, like, you know, she was parenting in a way that was different from her mother, trying to give us yeah. a different upbringing. Yeah. And now I'm trying to do it different. Same it's like thing. it's so... Yeah, I think they're like, you know, they say sometimes you just, you are your mother. Like sometimes when I'm speaking, I'm like, oh God, that's my mum. So there are definitely things that you'll carry through whether you want to or not. But there are some things that I'm actively, that were so, especially as an adult, are so clear to me looking back that if I do that, the result will be what happened to me and I do not want that. So you'll get a different result. Yeah, don't know what it is. No, and I well, that's so true. And that's where I think like there will be byproducts where I'm like, oh, and then they'll grow up and go, you know, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I hope when they do that, because they will do that, they will be a bit more open to like, I'm sorry, I did that. (laughs) Let me know what I did wrong, and I will, as a grandparent, I will try and you know be different or whatever. But um, yeah, so you know, it's challenging. But the I I mean, my lot my girls. They, we're, we're really lucky. I mean, everyone will say that and everyone loves the kids. But, yeah, I can't complain. So when you start the health issues, was that the only health issue you've had, those migraines? Yeah, I've had a few. And they, they also, I mean, the vestibular migraines I don't think is connected, but there's autoimmune sort of stuff. And without going on a big rant, it's fully, and the doctors think it's fully related to just overuse of antibiotics. In the 80s, in the 90s, if you had tonsillitis or you know whatever they just threw antibiotics i remember loving like amoxil the banana flavored amoxil when i was a kid but it was just no one back i mean to be fair back then they didn't know that it was also absolutely wrecking your bowel flora which is there for a reason um and so there was a couple of things that um happened that made me take a whole heap of antibiotics at once and i think it just killed the bowel flora, which meant that all these other, you know, things happened. Yeah. yeah, so I have a thing now called, they diagnosed it about 10 years ago, it's called Meniere's disease. So these two things are around your vestibular system as well. Two separate mm-hmm. things, but they both kind of have the same thing. Meniere's disease is, they're still trying to figure out what causes it, but they think it's autoimmune. For me, it was probably a virus I had that attacked my inner ear. that often triggers autoimmune, evidently. Yeah, Yeah. your body just inflames, and and it's wary of everything that comes in and overreacts. And so um, it just causes vertigo 
spells of vertigo. And so stress can bring it, like you can go into long periods of remission and then things can just make you start spinning again. So when COVID hit and there was some stressful stuff going at work and then I just, I couldn't get out of bed. The world was spinning and for weeks I had to, I could only work in the mornings. My work was amazing to be fair. Um, but for months I could only work in the mornings uh, and I had to build my way back up and I was on medication and, and vestibular therapy and all sorts of stuff. So it was, it was pretty, yeah, pretty crazy. I've got it. I'd say I've got it under control now to a degree, but it can come back. Um, and how did COVID sort of affect you? So you were able to work from home? Yes. And look, COVID's awful. And obviously what's happened to people in COVID is awful, but there have been quite a few silver linings. Yeah, it was, it's been great for but me. Can I, okay, <laughs> I say that? COVID has been awesome for us. <laughs> no, I, I mean, and so far to date, we haven't gotten COVID as far as we know. I was already working from home a couple of days anyway. So I worked for CBA three and a half days a week, and I think, one of them at that time before COVID, I was already working from home and then so I was already set up here. I have to say they're really good at flexible working. What was awesome was Simon was um, working for NAB by then and I'd always said to him, like, again, with young kids, I'm like, can't you work from home for a few days? It'd be so helpful, you know, and he's like, it's career for a guy. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even ask that. It's career. Like, he just could never envision how it could work working from home. And I feel like... COVID. Same with managers in a lot of business. We're like, no. And, and just Couldn't leaders of businesses, yeah. our business can't function if everyone's working from home. And then it's like, well, Suddenly. you have no choice now. Yeah. It's COVID. And if you want people to work, it has to be from home. Yeah. And it was just this epiphany that, like, he doesn't have to work from home now, but he is. Yeah. Because it's like, holy shit. Not, it works. Like, I, it works. And yeah. I can work from home. And it's, I mean, I can get so much more done. The balance of life. So I love it. And yeah. I think that I showed what was possible. 100%. And it's changed the, the operating models for so many businesses. Some of them I've still heard, like just from friends whose husbands work in, you know, other types of business who brought everyone back. And I think it, it's really bad because it just shows a lack of trust and yeah. a lack of kind of consideration of how much better it is for people to have that flexibility. So, yeah. but yeah, no, we're, we're pretty lucky. So COVID, the other thing COVID did was it actually helped to diagnose our daughter and my husband with ADD, <laughs> which wow. totally would have been, oh, maybe one day it would have been picked up, but I don't think so. So the way that happened was our, um, so Gracie had been sort of having a bit of anxiety since year one, so since she was like six years old. So she was seeing this psychologist who happened to be an expert in and doing a PhD in ADD because apparently you're going to be able to see it in the brain because it's a chemical, wow. um, like a lack of epinephrine and dopamine or something in the brain. And so you'll get there whether you'll be able to do a brain scan and, and know if someone's got ADD or not, ADHD. Um, yeah. yeah, but she didn't pick it up in our in Gracie because that's not we was, what we were seeing her for. But then there were some other things I could send Gracie to OT for some fine motor skills and, you know, they test them on a bunch of things and still didn't pick it up. School didn't pick it up because she had been performing, like her results were as expected for her age, like average. Yeah. Um, but then... COVID hit and Gracie was doing her sessions via Zoom. Also, girls mimic ADHD really well. So that's why also in class, she's not the H really. She's more the inattentive. inattentive. Yeah. So she wouldn't be mucking up in class. She wasn't, you know, any, in any obvious way experiencing any issues. In the psychologist's office, she knew she had to sit and at least look like she was paying attention. So that wasn't picked up there. But via Zoom, 
she was in her own environment. She was comfortable doing what she normally does and it was impossible to get her attention apparently from for the psychology psych. I think I've got an ADHD kid here. And so, again, we wouldn't have been having these Zoom sessions if it wasn't for COVID. So then we went through this whole diagnosis, like proper diagnosis for ADHD, and she she really is. And the funny thing is, as soon as she's on Ritalin now, what had been like average performance, which was fine at school, suddenly she became ducks of the school and she got like the mathematics award. She's in selective stream in high school now. And it's because she wasn't performing at her potential, but yeah. because it wasn't, she Battle wasn't failing. Head. Sorry? Little battle in her head going on. To... Well, just overwhelming. But the funny thing was for Simon, because as we're going through all the questionnaire for her, because you have to do this huge questionnaire as parents, and then there has to be a few different environments where they diagnose them in, like school and another one. Um, I'm like, that sounds like you. <laughs> like I'm doing, I'm like, because I, I didn't really understand ADHD at all until we went through this. Because you just think it's the hyperactive kid. Like, you really, there's yeah. three different buckets of ADHD, and it's really, it's really interesting. But I was like, this explains to me a lot about your behaviours and things that I'm like, I'll, you know, you'll go to the shop. I sent you to the shop because I was sick a few years ago to get some vitamin C, and you came back with a watermelon. <laughs> like, just totally, <laughs> just random things that now are making sense. And so we both did these, you know, things on him. So he filled out the questionnaire on himself. I did it on him. And the results came back from me off the charts, ADHD. The results came back from his self-assessment, no way, my ADHD, like not at all. So then you have to go to a psychiatrist when you're an adult um, because they're the only ones who can prescribe medication. And he was helping with the diagnosis as well. And he did a few more actual tests in there. And he's like, you're off the charts, ADHD. And then he said, but if you really still need proof, we'll start you on. He started dexamphetamine, which is another Ritalin type. Yeah. Um, and he said, if you are not ADHD, the chemical will be at normal levels and you will take this, which is a stimulant, and you will be bouncing off the walls. Yeah. If you don't have it, you will see a totally different effect. So he took it and he's like, oh, my God, I have ADHD. Because the world around him just calmed down. The way he described yeah. it was like his brain had been total chaos. And, and overdrive. Yeah, and everything overwhelming. And then he took the drug and it was like things settled into order. And all those things, because he's doing a PhD now. He got two masters. He was halfway through his second masters when he got diagnosed. He was doing okay, yeah. a bit like Gracie. And then he started his medication. <laughs> and and he both their getting, results went up. Seriously, like oh, high yeah. distinctions. And he got asked to do a PhD off the bottom. And so mm-hmm. when it changed his whole perspective on his whole life, because he then looked back and went, I did have ADHD now. I can see that. And as a kid, all those things I was struggling to understand wasn't just me being stupid. I had ADHD and yeah. I was undiagnosed and... It was just really interesting to see the revelation for life changing, and that COVID really spurred that because catalyst, yeah, really interesting, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Like a fish. So I think we were talking a little bit in the break, but when you look back now at yourself in high school, oh, <laughs> I had this question where I was like, "What would you say to yourself, or if you could go back, what would you want yourself to know?" and but honestly, I think personally, if I got in a time machine, I'd just have to get back in and come home. Come back in. I don't think there's... Yeah, that would be... Just had to let that. But it's just funny, like, even just remembering what I was like back in high school because I did do, I think I was saying, I did do cartooning back then and I, I think I would yeah. probably push myself to do more with that then. But the school wasn't really set up to foster that. Like, the, so... <sighs> So do you remember our art teacher, Miss White? Oh, yes. 
So it's like a typical, stereotypical, you know, art teacher and abstract art and hated cartooning. Like I was not an artist in her eyes. So oh, what oh. I did was just not art. It I remember her telling me that sketching is not art oh. and you have to make a bold line. Oh, my just, God. She had so many rules. She around. made me like, sorry, Miss White, but I hated <laughs> art. Like I, st- I didn't do it as an elective and I, and I should have, but it just wasn't. So the funny thing was with, where the art rooms were, they had in the hallway um, and she would put up these, like, masterpieces on the wall of yeah. artworks that kids had done that she loved. And I never got anything put on that wall except for ones. And it was this one artwork she'd said to do, and we had this big piece of cardboard paper and a cutout of a chair, and you had to make it into something, anything you wanted. And I probably had some cartooning idea I was going to cartoon something with it. And then I knocked accidentally this bottle of black paint all over it, and I was, like, scrubbing it off. Scrubbing it off, she came past, she's like, masterpiece genius yes. a tornado <laughs> lifting the chair up and I was like yeah yes. that's what I meant to do and that's the one and only art I ever had she on was that so wall. extreme I love that her name was Miss White because she was very black and white right, well, and you know when you think about and like she hated me too until one day I did something and, and then she you know from black to white, you know. Well, apparently there was, before our time, there wasn't, because my sister went to Sydney, there was another art teacher called Miss Black. Wow. <laughs> so they only hire them if they have surnames that extreme are colored. Extreme opinions. And extreme <laughs> opinions, yeah. So I didn't. But the funny thing was Miss Clooster. Do you remember Mrs. Clooster? Yes, our what was mistress? she? English. She was our form mistress, and I thought oh, yes, she did some art. Yes. Red hair, yeah. And she saw that I liked cartooning and was somewhat okay at it, so she used to find little ways for me to, to do it. And I remember I got in trouble once and my punishment was that I had to do a cartoon for the secretaries because they wanted to speak some <laughs> quote or something that was funny but it didn't have a cartoon. Slave labour. Yeah, so I was like, okay, sure, I'll take that over detention. And then, and also the boys' school once ran a competi- uh, cartooning competition and I was the only girl to enter it and it was, um, like, should Australia be a republic? That was back Wow, we were talking about back then. And I did did this, like, map of Australia and Paul Keating, who must have been the Prime Minister at the time, sitting on a throne with a scepter and the, you know, regal cloak and Prince Charles tied up and bound next to him. (laughs) And then so I'd entered it and never thought anything about it again until this guy who I caught the bus with came up and said, oh, congratulations, I think you won the cartooning competition. It was judged by Bill Leake, who was a cartoonist for The Telegraph at the time. Wow. And then... I was like, oh, are you showing? He's like, yeah, look. And he showed me their newsletter. And I don't know if because I was the only girl to enter and it was the boys' school cartooning competition and they didn't want a girl to win or they just didn't realise I was a girl. But they <laughs> like, congratulations to Michael, Michael Dad. <laughs> 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 winning the cartooning. Oh, oh yeah, God. that's me. Yeah, it was so funny. And then you were supposed to win, like, these, this big art thing of pencils and pens or whatever and I'm like I never they never formally like came to me and said you won it and my mum had find to you at the boys school yeah couldn't find me at the boys school <laughs> it was like let's just pretend this cartoon competition <laughs> never happened <laughs> and mum had to ring them like months later and go can she just have the prize I think she won yeah I don't know it was oh and I and one more cartooning story when um on, I remember Monday morning geographies I used to have with a couple of the girls who were in another group, but they used to have wild weekends. This must have been like year 10 or 11 or something, and they would go out and do crazy things, and then they'd come and tell me their stories and ask me to cartoon what they were saying so they could have, like, a picture <laughs> and just take away to remind them of this crazy weekend they had. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. I reckon there'll be cartooning in your future. 
Yeah, but they're nice too. I'll show you, I'll show you my stuff later because I had a, I had a few things published, and I like, like I said, I liked the ideas. I think I just have to be in a different space where I'm not doing it for anything other than myself to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, and then I'll just and be someone wants it one day in the future. Things calm down. All right, sure. Lovely to talk to you. And you. Thank you so much. Okay, once again, I spoke way too much for a podcast host in this episode. I apologize, Michelle, but thank you so much for being a part of this. You're fabulous.